0: G'day, this is Politics Live. This week I'm talking to the Liberal Senator or outgoing Liberal Senator Arthur Sinodinos, a person I've dealt with in Canberra in his various phases of public life for more than 20 years. He is heading off to Washington to become Australia's next ambassador, replacing Joe Hockey there. We'll get to that at the end of the chat, but I wanted to start with Scott Morrison and decant a couple of Arthur's thoughts about the Prime Minister. Listener. Arthur Sinodernis, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be with you. So I want to start, oddly, not with you, even though this is a conversation about you and your career, but with something that you said when in your valedictory yeah. in the yeah. Senate about Scott Morrison, Right, where my little ears pricked up, and I wondered yes. what you meant. You described him as...
1: The most complete the politician of his generation. Yes. What do you mean? Well, what, what I meant by that is I've known him for about 20 years, and he's come up through the organisation... He's had all these major ministerial appointments. He struck me on the way through as someone who's accumulated experience and learnt from that along the way and is at ease, as I see it, with all aspects of the job, whether it's being in Cabinet, being in the Parliament, dealing with the party organisation, dealing with people out there. You know, prime ministers can sometimes have favourite parts of the job and unfavourite parts of the job. This bloke strikes me as... Every part of the job is his favorite part of the job. And because of the background, the experience he's had in the organization, plus also his own background in market research and everything else, he struck me as someone who particularly understood how the campaigning works and what's required to make a campaign be effective. And the work I've done on the the election campaign for the Liberal Party with Stephen Joyce from New Zealand shows that these characters, you know, Andrew Hurst and, and the rest of them, with Scott, but they started before Scott. You know, they had about twelve months planning of all this. But with Scott, when they sat down, they worked out what the campaign message was going to be, and they just rigorously stuck to that. So he didn't do even if there was a day he might be tempted to go out on, let's say, boat people. Yep. If that wasn't consistent with the theme, which was economic management, he would not do that. Extraordinary discipline and a, and a great capacity to apply himself to the job. So in that sense, a real professional.
0: Yeah, but multifaceted is your point that he can yeah, absolutely that, that yeah. there's not that there's not one dimension of the job that he does under sufferance. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Is what you mean? Yeah. Okay, interesting. What do you think he's going to do in this term? Um, the way this term is shaping up, I think events are really going to intrude. I mean, there can be the best laid plans of mice and men in mm-hmm. this game, mm-hmm. but events, whether it's The events here within Australia, the drought, the way that is playing out, that is playing out, I think, a bit differently than most people expected. It seems to be going longer and being more serious than people expected. It's already causing, obviously, issues within the coalition itself and within the parliament. External factors, the global headwinds that everybody talks about, whether it's the economic headwinds between China and the US, the ultimate implications of Brexit and what's happening in Europe the relationship with China and how we in the future manage that relationship, all of that is going to take up more time and consume more energy than I I suspect. Most prime ministers when they come in, I remember this with John Howard in 96, they say, I'm going to be a domestic prime minister. My focus is on the people here. But very quickly, you get mugged by reality, which is particularly in this day and age with globalization, you have to be able to interact with other leaders, obviously, but these external events take up more and more of your time. Mm.
0: I, I totally agree. That's that's just what happens. You sort of come to, I've, so many prime ministers now that I've seen, they come to office thinking, here's my moment and yeah. events, you know, events determine what the moment I mean, that's is. not to say
1: he's not passionate no, 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 about no, no, various no, no, things. No, 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 yeah. I'm not taking what you said that way. I thought, yeah. no.
0: But I suppose my point is the difficulty setting aside events, which yeah. I agree yeah. will actually mm. be the dominant feature yeah. of this term. That's what mm. it looks like. But the consequence of where we started, right, which is, is he's the complete politician. Uh, there's no element of the job that he's uncomfortable about. He had the confidence to remain on message during the campaign, yeah. even if he'd been inclined to go elsewhere, right? Yeah. But the, the total effect of that is that he didn't really seek a mandate to do much at the last federal election.
1: Well, uh, he, he put out certain headline promises which were consistent with the theme of the campaign around economic management, things like the tax cuts, and that's been implemented. But after the election, he made it clear there was more reform potentially coming. Industrial relations reform, Christian Porter's been out there talking about various things that could happen. There's some proposals around greenfields investment, bargaining arrangements around greenfield sites that the government is already saying it's going to do something about. So I wouldn't discount that we will be surprised that more comes on the agenda. Mm -hmm. My point was essentially that my feeling is, looking at what's happened so far, is that events are going to dominate more than maybe people thought they would. I think if you asked the prime minister, he would say, "But look, I laid out this whole budget with Josh Frydenberg before the election. It's got all seven hundred measures in, in it. Yep. a lot of stuff in it. We've got to get that done." And this plays into another theme of his, which is, he wouldn't put it like this, but this is how I'd put it, which is, I basically want government to be boring, For government to be seen by people as steady. This week, Catherine. Mm. Last week, certain and stable. Yes, yeah, certain. Seems to be the words. Mm-hmm. jure. Hashtag. Um, mm. Yeah, but. Mm. But the, the point of that is I want people to feel like government in Canberra is solid,
0: confident, yes. getting on with it. Yeah.
1: The soap opera of the last six years is over, which plays into another theme, and, and I discussed this in the party room when I spoke on Tuesday when they asked me to say a few words, which is that essentially I think the Prime Minister has to treat this as the first term of a new government yes. and say, look, the last six years, all of that is over, the soap opera is gone, the ghosts of the past have moved on and it's a new government New personnel, and we're getting on with this agenda.
0: Mm. Just one more question, because this is a conversation about you, not about Morrison. But these are just questions I've wanted to ask you about Morrison, and I just haven't had an yeah. opportunity no, no, to have the no, conversation. no, no, I find them fascinating. You. So I thought towards the end of the last term, possibly during the election, possibly post election, that Morrison may pivot on climate change. I don't mean mm. massively. Mm. I mean, a bit. Yeah. Watching what he's been saying over the last couple of months, I'm less confident that the Liberals will shift. But what do I know?
1: What do you think? I'm a bit the other way. I, I think watch this space. And I think the reason for that is that, as I've spoken about before, the transition in the energy system is ongoing. Yeah. And that requires government to keep doing things and government will have to do those things. More renewables are coming on the system. We've had very high investment. That creates issues around the intermittency of generation. Now, you could say, well, the government might react by just saying we're going to really cement the position of coal-fired plants in the Mm. thing. I don't think the government will want to see premature withdrawal of coal-fired plants. But I think the logic of what's happening with technology and everything else is that there are options coming up for firming up, for backup and for storage. And I think the system whether it's the AEMO and everything else who are looking at the grid are saying look we've just got to get on with this plan and i think i think he will embrace that plan but i think he's the sort of politician he wants to do this in a way where he's not necessarily out there Prosely- proselytizing, proselytizing all of Thank this you. on the other hand the other thing we found when we're doing our liberal party review is that in inner city seats places like Kew, Yong and Higgins they want to know that What we say is what we mean, that we are serious about Mm. this. Mm. They looked very closely at what Shorten had to say, but in the end they couldn't buy it because they found they couldn't trust him or he couldn't explain the costs of action. He kept talking about the cost of inaction, and that just played into this impression that he's – you can't really trust him or he doesn't want to really engage with us. Yes. And that turned them off his plan. Mm. So, if you talk to our representatives in those sorts of seats, I think they're very keen to make sure that we're seen as being fair, Dinkum. Well, about that's this. that's
0: absolutely right. They are, but I just but, but the
1: Prime Minister has to make sure the message isn't narrowcast. Mm. That the message is consistent, mm. whether it's in Higgins and Qiong, or in up in Townsville and Leichhardt and all those places. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, sure. All right. Well, out of respect for you, I will watch this space with an open mind. Now, let's talk about you. Yeah. Uh, this is sort of a silly way to, to kind of frame it for you, but I'm just interested in, in you spitballing. So in your in your public life, yeah.
1: what's the most important thing you've learned? Um, that you can't predict politics. I'm more humble about politics today than I was 20 or 30 years ago. When you're younger... I think quite often you think, well, if I think this true, sure, I'll work out what's going on. But politics does not cease to surprise me. And and I'm more humble about that now, as I said, than I've ever been. And the reason for that is, I, I, unless you do really systematic research, it's very hard based on the circles you move in or anecdotal stuff to necessarily pick up and say, this is definitively where people are going. Because there's so much that's going on out there and there are so many different Groups of people doing things out there that being able to say, "I can now put this all together and firmly tell you this is where things are going to go, things still have a capacity to surprise me i suppose is mm. what i 'm saying
0: so is is that a is that a whimsical statement in a way, or is it sort of like you know, programs like West Wing or pick your yeah. political drama yeah. of choice apart yeah. from In the Thick of It. Are you a fan of In the Thick of
1: It? Uh, yeah, I watch it from time to time. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> right. But they do create this sense of a sort of all-knowing political class that somehow can engineer events perfectly. I, I sometimes think that yeah. perception yeah. is unhelpful to you guys because yeah. it sort of creates a mythology well, that doesn't the, exist. The so. the
1: analogy I prefer is the fog of war,
0: yeah, right. Explain.
1: And that is that you're out there on the battlefield. There's fog around. The enemy is somewhere out there. Sometimes the enemy's behind you rather than in front of you. Mm. But the, the fact is it's an ambiguous environment in which you have to make all sorts of choices, incomplete information. And there's an X factor in politics as well, that things can come out of the blue and all of a sudden they just happen and you've got to deal with them. And look at John Howden guns in 1996. Yeah. Now, that's not something he would have thought to engineer when he was in opposition. No, quite. But it happened. He took advantage of the situation uh, with the support, obviously, of Tim Fisher. And the big triumph there was not so much the public being agreeable to that, but was really within the coalition making sure we held fast, given some of the concerns in the bush about this. Mm-hmm. But th- that's the X factor in politics. And that's what you've always got to f- sort of factor in. Mm-hmm. What's the, what's been your, what was your worst period in public life? Um, well, in in a personal sense, my worst period was probably that ICAC stuff and the fallout mm-hmm. from that. Mm-hmm. But before that, my worst period would have been – or the toughest period was those times, particularly in the Howard era when our back was to the wall and we thought we were going to be history and we had to fight back. But what was interesting about that is that we never took the attitude – that this is all lost and we should just give up. The attitude was more dig in and really fight your way through. But there were some tough periods. I remember after the GST was implemented and we had this issue about petrol prices. Yeah. And there were about six months there where we held out against doing anything more on petrol prices, you know, lowering the excise further. And and by the end of that year, you know, I could hear John Howard on the radio and others defending all this, and I thought, gee. We're really in there defending, but this isn't going away. And I remember we came back from holidays early 2001 and it was the beginning of an election year. Mm. And I think we just decided we've got to get this fixed. We can't let it go on. So those periods where we've had to dig in, the numbers are against us, the polling numbers, it all looks like people have written you off. They can be tough periods. But in a personal sense, that ICAC period was tough because the whole process was different to how I thought these processes would work. I guess I thought it was like a court process where it was actually more of an inquiry process where the counsel assisting has a particular theory and essentially you're there to back up the theory and backed into a corner. And I found that difficult to deal with. And then of course I had to stand down and I was on the back bench for a while. And that was was a tough few months up, up until the end of 2014. But then I bounced back in 2015 because events around me started to change. Yes. Like the government started to get into trouble and backbenchers would be coming to me and saying things are not great and it didn't look like they were going to change and that's how the mm. empty chair challenge came about. Yes, well, exactly. There were, I wasn't the instigator of that, but there were a lot of people who were concerned about what was going on and sort of, it was a bushfire mm. that just happened. And mm. Queensland, where Campbell Newman lost, really sent people Yes you know, into overdrive thinking, is this our fate potentially, if it appears that we're not listening? Well, the same
0: dynamic that went, that moved against Turnbull too, after the by-elections, you know, the Queenslanders basically kind of moved against Turnbull in that in that final. And, and
1: what struck me, and I was away then because I was ill, but yes. what struck me about that period was we seemed to be ramping up the expectations on ourselves about being able to, for the first time since Federation, take seats off the opposition. Yes. And, and one of the things I have learned in politics is, if possible, under-promise and over-deliver. Mm. It's like this election campaign. No one expected us to win. So afterwards, it looks like a miracle. <laughs> but as I said in my valedictory and elsewhere, well, if you go back and look at the record, actually a lot of work went into this. And we are also fortunate. Well, I don't know that Bill would agree with this, but Bill Shorten actually turned out to be our version of Alan Bond.
0: Yes. Well, it obviously wasn't helpful to Labor's fortunes. No, and the,
1: and the taxes that were out there for so long. And
0: yes, yeah, yeah. Well, combination of those things. I hope you don't mind me saying this, but it's it's uh, it's, a, it's a it's a means of me prompting you about the media. Yeah. Observations yeah. about the media, yeah. right? Where you're going to have some very interesting perceptions. I remember as a then young journalist at the Finn Review yeah, and I worked, I was on the Sunday shift because I had little kids. Yeah. So I worked every Sunday for about four years with yeah, Steve Lewis pretty uh, tough. at that, <laughs> during that period. Yeah. And this was during the Howard period. And we knew as, you know, Steve would ring you or I would ring you. Yeah. And this was when you were John Howard's chief of staff. Yes. And you would give us a briefing about the week. Yeah. You would. Just all background. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is yeah. what we're doing this week. Yeah. This is these are the issues. This to the is, extent
1: we knew ourselves what well, we were doing. Well, yeah. well, you sounded yeah. pretty
0: calm. Anyway, so you yeah, would I you understand. would you would give that briefing, right? And that actually helped the government shape its message for mm-hmm. a very long period of time. I'm not saying that it was all you, Arthur, but it was. No, I understand. What but you, you played an important role in that. Yeah. Right. You, <laughs> it wouldn't work now, would it? That That's, that approach, or it, or do you think it would? Well, I mean, one, it, it doesn't happen anymore or happen in that way. It happens I, differently I think, now. I think it is but... harder
1: now because there's there's so much coming at everybody. And even if you look at the, the Sunday mornings, you've got a number of TV programs as well as all the newspapers and whatever. So I don't feel people are as in control as they maybe were then. On the other hand, you've got to be in there trying to shape a message because nature abhors a vacuum. Mm. And if you don't feel it, others will. And I think I guess the philosophy we took in those days was that we had to at least try and explain what we thought we were up to yes. to the extent we could control events, as opposed to just having it interpreted by others. And you know, even though I know um, Scott Morrison's office came in for a bit of a kiboshing over the um, the talking points, the fact is you've got to have you've got to have a series of priorities that you're identifying for people. And I guess what we were doing at the beginning of every week. In a hopefully understandable way, is let people know what we thought the priorities. Yeah,
0: were. I'm, not, I'm not. Obviously, it wasn't a dictation exercise. I'm no. not demeaning either you or me in this process, right? It's not like you know Arthur rings all dictation. It was. What I'm trying to say is, it was orderly. There was yeah. Yeah. there was a projection of what the objective was yeah. for the week. It didn't always happen. Yeah. Events yes. intervene, whatever, yeah. you know, bus turns over, yeah. someone, you know, whatever. But it, I just don't think that that works anymore. So, and you've said a couple of interesting things about the media. I mean, mm. I'm, and I'm totally open for self-hate. I've written a little book about <coughs> disruption in the media. Yeah, sure. So what, uh, well, I don't want to ask, I don't want to push poll you. What troubles you about the media? Does, does anything trouble you about the media cycle at the moment?
1: I think the media cycle is very fast. It is 24-7 because the, the political orthodoxy was always, if you've got a message, go out there and go on that message and just keep going on that message, which is what the PM obviously did in the campaign. But in the media these days, uh, once the news is out, that's it. It's out. Mm. What's next? What have you done for me lately? Mm. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I know what there, you mean. <laughs> and, there's a, and there's this incredible pressure on journalists as well as politicians and others to keep making it fresh and new and all the rest of it. And I think that is hard. I think at one stage, and maybe I'm being a bit unfair to him, but at one stage I think Kevin Rudd thought he could win the daily media battle. But I don't think you can. I think it's too exhausting. Mm. You can't keep coming up with something really new every day. Mm. So I think it's getting very tough now. And I notice with journos, the journos have got to be multifaceted. They can't be just writing. They've got to be appearing. They've got to be talking. They've got to be doing podcasts. They've got to be doing this, doing that. And that's all part of you know more modern journalism. But, but the pressure is on the whole time. And the concern also is that in this sort of cycle, the urgent can crowd out the important. Mm. And on foreign policy, for example, what it can mean is that if you're under constant pressure because of events to be saying things and, and, and working things out, you sometimes don't have the time to provide or put together a considered position, Mm, and mm. that can be dangerous. And that's one area where I think we've just got to be careful. I've noticed lately a lot of people talk on foreign policy, and maybe now because I'm thinking more of it because of the role I'm... Yes, about to go to. ...about to go to. But, you know, there's a lot of foreign policy areas where you just want the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister to be speaking. Yes, and yet everybody has has feelings these days. (laughs) Because what happens is whatever is said here by people... It's interpreted by other countries as authoritative or semi-authoritative, and mm. people say, "Well, what is actually What's the position?" Yeah, yes. i um, That's not to cast shade on my no, no, colleagues, no. but no, it's. No. I hear what you're saying, but yeah. it, th- th- that's part of the challenge. The other point I made in my valedictory, or one of the other points I made about media, is the extent to which the media, potentially these days, being forced to be more advocates, mm. whereas in the past there was a bit of an expectation that. And we knew how some of the newspaper magnates operated, you know, Frank Packer, the Murdochs or whatever. You know, I mean, I'm not saying everybody was lily white, but there was more of a a feeling that you had established organs of record. Yes. Whereas now the feeling is that everything is up for grabs, Mm. that positions are up for grabs. There's more partisanship around everything.
0: Yes, and it's problematic. But do you think it sort of also folds back into politics because we do have this, you know, I say to people a lot, it's like we've gone back to our origins, journalism, I mean, which was radical pamphlets, right? That Like that was our origins. Yes. And we have gone back to that. Mm. So... And that creates a sort of a everything being kind of relative in a sense, right? Yes, you yeah. you construct a position, you, you, mm. advocates is your mm. word, right? Mm. But then does that play back into politics? Because then consumers of media and politics are left in a situation where they're not entirely certain what, what's true and what isn't. They're not yes, entirely well, but, certain. But the other
1: thing that's happening is that people are now consuming the information they want to consume. Yes. Well, that's the other... Yeah, right. So that it, so, so you can now be fed or streamed information from your preferred outlets. Yes, And, and it becomes a confirmation bias exercise rather exactly, than... A, yeah, yeah, your no, preconceptions, your assumptions are being reinforced. And therefore, how does that lead to a dialogue, a productive dialogue within the broader community, yeah. within the public space, in inverted commas, and... Is this leading to a situation where, yeah, things become more tribal yes. and all the rest of it? And my concern, and I mentioned this in my valedictory, was we have certain basic values which underpin the way we run this place mm-hmm. as a liberal democracy, the small l. We don't want to lose sight of those on the way through with all this. It's a noisy democracy, and we should have yes. contending ideas and views. of course, of course. But... Don't lose sight of those values which underpin all this, yeah. and which well, allow this to happen. Well,
0: without a you and I are in furious agreement about this. Without a set of shared, agreed facts, then everybody's at sea. Everybody is at sea. You see, you are, we are. I, I mentioned
1: climate change in my in my valedictory. My concern there was not being a scientist, but being a policymaker. If I weigh up all these opinions that are being thrown at me, what, what's my guide? How mm. do I work mm. it out? And I can either take the view, oh, all this science must be wrong. It can't really be like that. Man will always muddle through, et cetera, all this sort of stuff. But if I take that approach and the science turns out to be wrong, and I've taken actions, well, okay, there are some costs to those actions. Mm. But if I ignore the science and it turns out to be right, then potentially I'm catastrophically wrong. Correct. This is so it's it's a bit like Pascal's wager about whether you believe <laughs> in God or not. Yeah, yeah. And so that so as a policymaker, that's the sort of attitude that I, I take. Yes. And so the point I was making about that is, I was using it as an example, is that we've got to have some agreed basis of f- facts yes. or whatever it is yes. on which we can then work out what to do. Well, you and me are old-fashioned, but we completely
0: great. So uh, just one, uh, I just want to ask about the new job before we finish up. Donald Trump,
1: oh, mm. my God. Like, Look, I'm not as, um, obviously, you know, Politicians are idiosyncratic, you know, and so I, I'm used to that. It's not, it's not as if it's a blinding revelation that a leader will have strong views one way or the other. And But my job is to go there and represent the Australian national interest. I'm not there as some sort of commentator on the American system no. or the president or whatever. My job, and I think Joe has done this very well, is to learn which buttons I push mm. to get the job done. Mm. And It's an interesting system because what's happening in the US is, I think, that the president is not so much the cause of political disruption. I think he's been thrown up by that political disruption where you have parts of the US which clearly are felt left behind, marginalized, parts of the US where real wages haven't grown in decades. And compared to Australia, of course, it's it's a much more um, sink or swim sort of system. You don't have the same safety nets and everything else. And even though you have high mobility of labor and, and people can walk, uh, move around looking for jobs, it seems people feel that some parts of the country have missed out on the prosperity that they can see on the East Coast or the West Coast. And in a sense, what the president has done is reach out to them and say, well, part of my appeal is that I want to put you first. Mm. And that may not play out as well to some people overseas, but that's the politics of the country. And I've got to understand the politics. And I think one of the things that whether it's the ambassador, the consuls general, or others have to do over there, I think is understand what is the dynamic behind what's going on. That that's why I came back. I come back to something I said at the beginning. That's why politics infinitely surprises me because mm. you just you've got to really go out there and try and understand people.
0: Well, well, yeah, absolutely, and that's the job. How have you? How are you? <laughs> you know, what does day one look like? ambassador to to Washington, what does it look like in your mind?
1: What happens? Well, I think by the time I get there, it'll be pretty cold. So day (laughs) one will be a pretty cold day when I get there. But I I think, well, the first thing is to um, meet the staff, the deputy head of mission, uh, Katrina Cooper and the others, and – start to get a feel for the immediate agenda. I'll have a longer term agenda based on discussions with DFAT and ministers and others. But day one is to actually get to know the team Mm -hmm. and to try and encourage this sense that it is a team that is doing this because no one can do it on their own. And I work best when I feel that there's a team They trust me and I trust them Mm. and we just get on with it.
0: Mm. Well, you've got a good team in Washington. Having seen them recently, I I
1: can attest. No, no, I I got really good feedback on how they went. Yeah, they was great. great. Do you play golf? Uh, Very badly. Uh, I haven't played for quite a few years. Have you been brushing up? Uh, not yet, but <laughs> I should try and find some time over the summer to do that, actually. But, I mean, again, every ambassador does this in a different way. Well, this is kind um, of the
0: point. So, it's... And I saw
1: Kim Beasley over in Western Australia a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elizabeth and I went over and saw him and Susie. We talked about the public and private aspects of the job. And, so, and, and that just reinforced in my mind that different people have different ways of, of doing this. Mm-hmm. So I've got to get there and learn the lie of the land and off we go.
0: <laughs> well, I, I look forward to visiting you at some point in that very nice residence in Washington. and seeing no, no, you when I, we, when we blow through. I look forward to it too.
1: You can play yeah. tennis out the Well, back.
0: well and there's it quite a nice pool, yes. So <laughs> anyway, enjoy yourself. I'm sure it'll be good. Um, Arthur, thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thanks, Catherine.
0: Thank you so very much for listening. Thank you, as always, to Miles Martignoni, Hannah Izzard and his whole production crew in Sydney. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and share to APL and to Full Story. You know the drill. Uh, go and look for it, download it, subscribe, tell your friends, etc. cetera. Uh, we'll be back next week.